Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Yama! Yama, Yuindi, Tila, Nadu, Winang, Nangay, E, Yinjimara, Marangay, May. Jirinya, Gadigabu, Nurembengabu. Hello, everyone. I'm Tila. I pay my respects to the first peoples to be born to this country, and I acknowledge the Gadigal as the first peoples of this country. Um, thank you all for joining us, Mangdanguru. This session is reckoning, not reconciliation. And before I introduce the amazing Stan Grant, um, this theme was really born out of my first public-facing essay called Reckoning, Not Reconciliation. It's time to show up. And it, it grew then, it transpired then into uh, an addition of um, a collection of essays. And that collection, published in the Griffith Review, was called Acts of Reckoning. And that opened up this dialogue between First Nations peoples and non-Indigenous Australians in relation to their take on, on reckoning. What does it mean to them? And for those that don't know, um, so Samuel, Samuel Griffith, who the journal was named after, is the inaugural Chief Justice of, of the High Court of Australia. And this was such a pivotal piece of work for me because what I saw in that collection of essays, particularly by non-Indigenous Australians, was them taking ownership and responsibility for their ancestors. And so, it comes from that edition um, that we get to have this yarn today, and we're going to dive a little bit more deeper into reckoning in that concept a little bit later. But Stan Grant, mm. I am truly honoured to be here with you today. Mandanguru sister. Baduru Radri Gibi Adirama Dilinya, Baduru Radri. Now the Indian Mara Radri mine, Gamilroy mine, Darawa mine. Um, as well to pay our respects to the people here and, and our people. And it's my pleasure to be on the stage with Teela, because Teela and I were Adjuri people. Our, we come from the Naden family, big family of Wiradjuri people through our grandmothers. We share blood and we share a bond. So it's good to be with my sister. Yeah, and I wanted to... <laughs> And I think that's a great starting point because I vividly recall um, being a young Koori kid in Gilgandra mm. where I was born and raised and you and your mob were travelling through one day. And I must have been, I think, about eight or nine years old. And as old people do, especially in our kinship, they're always so proud of when you know, the next generation step up to the, platter, to the plate. And um, I remember you had this aura around you. I believe that you um, must have been either at university or just mm. going out into mm. your career. And you're of the generation of my dear mother, mm. um, who is now passed to be with our ancestors. And... I wanted to start with that point. In rooms like this, and when we show up to spaces like this, how does it make you feel that our ancestors are always showing up for us? Well, they're always there. And, you know, I used to stay at Teela's Nan's house. Um, I used to sit in her kitchen, run around her kitchen when I was, when I was little. And uh, my sister was born in Gilgandra and we lived there. We lived in a lot of different places across Wiradjuri country. Um, my ancestors, our ancestors are, are, are always there. You know, I couldn't, 
imagine a world where they're not there. My grandfather, my mum's dad, who was probably the most important person in the world to me growing up, who passed from this earth when I was about 14 or 15. But there is not a day goes by that he's not speaking to me. And, you know, yesterday, this is the, the really eerie thing about our people too, is that not only are they always there, they appear just when we need them. And yesterday I was walking through the park in Glebe and this black fellow came along and said good day to me and he looked just like my grandfather, my dad, my mum's dad. And he said, oh, Gomeroy. And I said, yeah, same as my, my, grand, my grandfather. I said, where are you from? And he said, oh, I'm from, from Walgett. And he turned to me and he said, no matter what they do to us, my brother, we're God's people. We're God's people. And I needed to hear that. And a man who's a Gomeroy man, my mum's people, walking up to me in a park who looked like my grandfather to say that, just when we need them. And this morning, before we came here, I was at the coffee shop and I was just about to text Teela. I walked out and she's standing there. <laughs> so they're, they're always there. And I, f I find as well that whenever I write anything, I disappear and my ancestors appear. I don't think I've written anything. It's always been my ancestors waiting for me to come to them so they can tell me the things I need to know so that I can speak those things. Absolutely. And, you know, I think furthermore to that, the here and now, we have so many of our old people who have just blazed trails and opportunities for you and I, and one of whom is here today, Nan Millie Ingram. Um, mm. I want to mention um, such a matriarch. And it was only um, really the beginning of this year, I think it was, we were back down on our country. Yes, yes. Wasn't that amazing? Country. That was amazing. And... My nan, my matriarch, was down there too. Um, and we sat under those eucalyptus trees. It, must, it was definitely above 50 degrees yeah. Celsius yeah. in those tents. And did you want to just um, reflect a bit on yeah. that? Especially in the sense of, you know, we're, we're seeing in the public space this conversation play out, but just the humility of our people and the mm. way they show up and hold space. There were so many elders there on that day. And so beautiful the way they hold space. It's a place called Warren Gesda. It was an old mission, one of the first missions set up in New South Wales. It was set up at a time when our people were being slaughtered. It was set up by a missionary by the name of John Brown Gribble, who, if you, if you see a photo of him, he looked like Rasputin didn't he? Long beard, long hair. And he was full of this zeal to save us. And it's always a, a double-edged sword, you know. On the one hand, he set up this mission called Warangesda, Warang, home in our language, and Bethesda, peace, a camp of peace, a home of peace for our people. He did that because he saw the brutality of the frontier and what was happening to our people. And yet on that mission itself, our people felt the brutality of someone who even sought to save us, that in that zeal, he sought to also control us. And we came together in this old mission site where our family is from, where my great-grandmother was born. My great-great-grandmother, Lydia Naden, was taken there as a young girl. Um, and to stand in that ground with our old people, our old women, the matriarchs, who stood there and held that space with such love and peace. And the first thing they did, this is what I draw from our people. The very first thing they did, one of the old aunties mm. stood up and she said, let's say a prayer for Reverend Gribble. Let's say a prayer for someone who sought to save us 
and in saving us as well, wrestled with his own demons and inevitably sought to control us in saving us. But what do we do? Let's say a prayer for the soul of the man. Let's hold this space with reverence. Let's find a place of love where we can find each other in a world of far too much hate. And I think, Tila, that, that changed us. I think it, it changed you in a way, didn't it? What, what did yeah. you feel being there? Um, it was just such a profound moment in my personal life, mm. really. Um, you know, I'd chased this profession in the city the for so long, the law, and um, it really happened actually at quite a critical point in um, when there was lots of politics going on in the background. And um, actually, it comes back to one of those mornings we were walking at the opposite ends of, of the beach we yeah. live on, and suddenly we <laughs> were we face to again. face again. <laughs> And um, I felt like I was called back yeah. to country yeah. for that conversation. It, um, it does call us, doesn't it? Mm. You know, we talk about country, we talk about belonging, but it is a calling. You know, there is something that changes in me physically when I take that journey. When I drive from Sydney and I head west or southwest, and I enter Wiradjuri country, there is a part of the earth that I feel shift. It shifts within me. If I'm driving towards Wagga and I get the other side of Yass and I pass down through a dip in the road up to the hills and everything changes. Mm. I feel it inside me. I sleep more deeply. I breathe more deeply. There is this overwhelming sense of being held mm. and that's what calls us to that place and if we're not there in the worlds that we live in in my world in the media in your world in the law we slowly start to lose something in ourselves don't we yeah if we're not there and I think one of those mornings I ran into you on the beach I, you, you looked at me and I could see you could see my spirit try to say something and um I think you go, you're right, sis. And, and I actually wasn't. It was one of those mornings where I think I'd woken up in the fetal position mm. feeling the heaviness of ancestors calling me home. And I think your sister, not long then after that, goes, oh, now you're coming back to Waragesna. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and after that yarn, you know, it felt like there was such a weight lifted and we'd brought our old people along yeah. in this bigger conversation but I wanted to ask you about how do we um, start to, I think, convey or express or communicate to the rest of this nation how history is still living in us, mm. how we will not just get over it, mm. and that, in fact, those old people that sat on our country under those giant eucalyptus trees have actually lived mm. the full force mm of what this nation has inflicted upon them. It's not something in the past. No, no, it's We're not. still enduring this well, now. Well, you can touch the hand of your grandmother who could touch the hand of her grandfather who's born into the frontier. That's mm. how close it is for us. Um, it isn't something distant. It isn't something that we can close the book on, nor should we, because it's happened in our land. Our land lives. It breathes. The waters are the same waters. The stars are the same stars. I'm sure the animals remember us and know us. The magpie, the guru, comes and speaks to my father. Speaks to my father. I was walking back along the river one day, back where mum and dad are, along the dirt track, and this big kangaroo hopped out into the middle of the road. I kept walking towards him, and he's just standing there. Walk further, further, further. We get this close to each other. He's just looking at me and then just moves aside and I think, he knows me. Mm. They, they know us. The land knows us and it remembers us and it holds us. And what we are talking about in Australia is not just a rupture of the souls of people, but a rupture of the earth. Mm. 
what has happened here has fallen into our earth. And that's where we find this tension. But how do we begin to have that conversation? We try constantly. And anyone who's been following the news of the past couple of weeks would know that the price you pay when you dare to have that conversation. Teela and I were both on the King's coronation coverage that night. And we'd spoken to each other before we went on and we both had trepidation Mm. about doing that because we know we were entering a hostile space. And I wasn't going to do it and Teela said to me, come on, come on, we have a right and we're people of ceremony too. Mm. Remember you said that to me, we're people of ceremony too. Well, my pitch to you was I think, you know, when these opportunities come up in this country in particular to create a really important conversation, we often look to our differences. And I I wanted to actually embark on that that yarn um, with the common ground. Ceremony. The ceremony. And, you know, particularly being raised the way we were raised um, on country and then having this career in the law, which in fact is very ceremonial. Mm. You know, you walk into a court, you bow to the judge, um, you get sworn in as a judge or admitted as a lawyer. It, it's, it's very ceremonial. Mm. And, you know, that, that profession really represents, I think, the, the, the penetration of the crown, the authority of the crown. And um, I've always felt very... Uh, torn in being able to navigate these spaces, especially as a lawyer. And I thought, no, we, we have, mm. I think, the right to have these conversations in every single space. And yet before we had spoken a word, the abuse had started. People told me that they were on social media and seeing the feed coming in before Teela and I had uttered a word. And we know when we enter that space of history, that it's a fragile space. We know it's going to cost us. It's going to hurt us because we have to speak about things that are intensely personal and painful. And we try to prepare the ground to have a hard conversation. We take, we take the country by the hand and we used words of love, yindyamara, respect, We actually said at one point, this is not an attack. Someone on air said, spoke of our grievance, and I interrupted him to say, no, not a grievance, the truth. Mm. Don't frame our truth as grievance. Don't frame our truth as an attack. Can we have this conversation with love and respect, but can we also speak of the hard things that have happened under the name of the crown? It was 40 minutes out of a six or seven hour broadcast and there were other people on the panel and yet we've seen what people have responded to. And I wonder, Teela, when you ask that question, can we have the conversation? Where do we have the conversation? Mm. Part of my own reckoning, to use the, the title today, has been with the media. I don't think, and I've said this on Q&A, I don't think we have the language or the love the language or the love to be able to speak to the gentle spirits of our country? I don't think so. Because when we say love, mm -hmm. people say hate. When we say respect, people people return with spite. I don't think we've got the language or the love. And especially on this point, language and love and yearble, which Mm -hmm. is how we Mm -hmm. express it. Um, I wanted to come back to something you had said a moment ago which was about when your country speaks to you and that language and it's within us it's Mm. all around us the animals will literally sit and have yarns Mm. and you know both of us opened up this space in this conversation in our traditional language and I feel like that was a place that we were speaking from Mm. on that panel from our country and I actually wanted to come back to Uncle Stan Grant Sr.'s work Mm. on this, on the revitalisation of the Wiradjuri Mm. language. Rather than getting too caught up in kind of my career as a lawyer or your career as a journalist, 
I really wanted to bring it back to the heart and soul of language and the power in language. And I wanted to ask um, the audience here in relation to language, hands up if you do not speak a First Nations language. Wow. And so in relation to that, when we're speaking from a place of our land, our language, it's Uncle Stan Grant Senior who says this quote, language is not about who you are, it is about where you are. And that really made me reflect on the position of non-Indigenous Australia. They are living, working and walking on First Nations land. But we just saw there how many do not or cannot speak a First Nations language. Is that the distance between us? It, it is the distance between us. It's a fundamental difference. Um, my father, um, that Teela was talking about, when he was a boy, he saw his grandfather jailed for speaking the language that Teela and I spoke. My great-grandfather spoke to him in the main street of the town they were living in. The policeman overheard him, charged him with offensive language, and he went to jail. When he came out, he said to my father, I won't speak this language to you again in the street. Took him out into the bush and he made sure he learned that language. Years later, my father worked with a linguist to breathe life into this language again, to write the first dictionary, to set up language centres. Now young kids are speaking out, speaking our language again. And I asked him one day, why, Dad, do you teach people who are not our people, not Wiradjuri mm. people? And he said... Son, because language isn't who you are, it's where you are. Our language comes out of the earth. And he said, Yindyamara, respect, means to love the people on your land, even if they have not shown love to you. Mm. That to be the, the earth, our mother speaks this language. And to walk on this language is to walk in, with our ancestors, regardless of who you are. Can I just read something? Because I did contemplate this in, the, in, in my book. And I, I, I wrote about this because it's, it's, it's something that's always, um, that's always stayed with me. And it goes to the distance. And it's just interesting that you raised that because this is precisely what was in my mind. And I wanted to find a, a story in Australia that spoke to what I saw as the fundamental difference. The who rather than the where. There is a story that has haunted me since I first read it. It is written by the man the Nobel Prize Committee said wrote the Australian continent into world literature, as if the stories of eternity my people spoke, the stories painted on our land didn't matter at all. And they didn't. That's the truth. Not to white people. This man was white, and he told a story of a land becoming white. I think now how absurdly apt it is that his name was White, Patrick White. And his story was a genesis story of a new white Australia. It begins in a forest, an Eden. It is the story of Stan Parker who takes his new wife, Amy, into the Australian wilderness to hack out a new life, to build a new people. This is what he wrote. Then the man took an axe and struck the side of a hairy tree, more to hear the sound than for any other reason. The silence was immense. It was the first time anything like this had happened in that part of the bush. I wondered about that. The first time. The first gunshot. The first foreign words swallowed into the silence. The new people with their axes. They can't live in the silence. They need noise. They cling to the places where the trees are cleared. 
After two centuries, Australians fear the bush. It is where they disappear. The place is where people die of thirst and hunger. They write stories of death in these places, of people who venture too far and never return. They fear evil out there. But the evil is in the noise, the crack of an axe striking a tree just because it had never before. And I think that goes to the distance, doesn't it? You filled the place with noise. You filled the trees and built the cities, and they're remarkable, remarkable. But what have we lost in a place where where you are should be more important than who you are? And as you were reading, it was not just the reflection on language. I just had a moment then thinking about when I am having yarns in different spaces, mm. you know, particularly the difference between when we're back on country mm. and the old people, they will sit around a campfire and they will tell stories, but at the same time, they're also so comfortable mm. sitting in their silence. Mm. And as blackfellas, you know, we grow up appreciating, I believe, the, um, the value in being still and silent. Mm. And I often wonder, especially in my career and, and people that, you know, yeah. I... Too much noise, eh? Too much noise. Taylor always says <laughs> to me, I can't stay here, there's just too much noise. You say that to me all the time. Yeah. And so... What do you reckon that is, you know, where, where we're able to sit with the country in silence, but, mm. but we do operate in these worlds where it's constantly got to be filled. Is it's, that... It's something else you and I talked about, right? Mm. We talk a lot and we talk a lot about these things. Um, the untranslated space mm-hmm. and the role of the translator. Teela and I, so many of our people are in this position where we're constantly translating. And it's called upon us to translate. And a home is the untranslatable space. We can't translate Mm. that feeling. And no matter what words we reach for, those words will never be enough. They will never be enough because it can't capture the silence. You know, when I go home, getting up in the morning and going to the river and washing my face in the water hearing the birds. I can't capture that in any word. Mm. When I'm back home with mum and dad, we don't even talk. We don't talk that much. You know, you just, yeah, 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 you go and you wander around and we don't have to. Mm. And it's the untranslated space. But when we enter this world, we are constantly translating. And I think this is, again, something I've really felt so bruised by and a sense of failure, I suppose, in a, as well, in what's happened over the past couple of weeks, is that I can't translate it, yeah. Taylor. I can't, and it's dangerous to. And so that actually just also reminds me of in the aftermath of the coronation panel mm. that we did, um, you know, the media did go a bit wild. And... Um, Speaking of the translating spaces, I uh, was asked to write for an international platform and I took the opportunity to do it and I won't name the platform, but I wanted to just flesh this out and it's not really a question, but it's more of the experiences trying to translate. Um, It was, I was asked to do an opinion on the aftermath of this, but also the big conversation we're having as a nation. And it was by a very lovely um, Australian woman who asked me uh, for my opinion, but it had to go um, via New York to get the tick, the box. And so every lawyer knows, or every writer knows as well, you know, you go through about seven, eight, nine drafts before you actually get there. And... I had written my opinion on the wake of the coronations, um, the coronation panel, 
the racism we were enduring. But I really wanted to bring it back to these systemic issues we're facing as a nation. And especially in this, this kind of this reckoning, this is the moment. Mm. We are in the reckoning. Mm. Um, and I think one of the questions we're grappling with in Australia um, <coughs> is how do we reconcile this nation and reckon with the truth mm. um, when we're enduring more racism than mm. ever before? And one of my arguments in the opinion was that, well, I wanted to come back to these fundamentals. You know, Australia, a fact is, it's a nation um, founded on racism. Mm. And here's the race power. And I want to I express this to the world. Um, because I, that was one of the powers I facilitated a conversation on in relation to the process that underpinned the Uluru Statement. And, and New York tried to, to, to get rid of this argument. You know, we can't talk about the power of racism in Australia. We just want you to, to talk about... Your you know, feelings. Your feelings. <laughs> but this is the law. This is the law you're talking about. Yes, and I just wanted to put it there to express, because one of the, and I, one of the um, experiences I've had, especially flying, you know, travelling abroad, um, I remember being on a plane once and this woman recognised my accent and she's like, oh, oh, mm. at, where are you from? And she's like, and I was like, oh, you know, Australia. And she's like, well, I didn't even know they had black people down there. <laughs> and it makes me wonder, in fact, how successful Australia's colonisation is in wiping us yeah. out and well, off we, this nation, off the planet, essentially. We, and not just that. I mean, we had a white... The first law signed... In, the first act signed into law with the new Australian parliament was what became known as the White Australia Policy. Mm. Of course, the nation grows out of the theft of our land and the doctrine of discovery and terra nullius and all of these erasing ideas, mm. even the names they gave us, Aboriginal people or Indians, as Captain Cook first called us, then Aborigines and never Wiradjuri, never Wailwan, never Gadigal, never, you know, we were never given our names. We were called something else. We were captured in someone else's idea and then forced to translate. I think, I mean, this has been for you, for me, for all of our people, a constant is how we speak back to this. And then mm. why do we speak back to it? Because clearly in even speaking back to it, we will not be heard or people will respond violently to it. I talk in the, in the book about a little experience I had, which I've, which I've never forgotten. And I think, in fact, probably frames all of my life, really. Um, when I was first memory of school, sitting on a carpet in kindergarten in the, on the floor, and this is 1960s, late 1960s Australia, um, didn't even look like this room, and everyone in there is white, except for me as the only Aboriginal kid in the class. And this white boy put his arm next to mine and he said, why are you so black? I've never forgotten it, never. It's like it's frozen in time because he'd never thought to ask himself why he was so white. That never occurred to him. It didn't have to. Mm. But he wasn't asking me to explain the colour of my skin. He was asking me to explain myself as a human being, are you human? He wasn't thinking these things, of course, but this is the assumption of the power that he had as a white boy sitting on a class, on the floor in class, just asking someone to explain themselves to him. I told another Aboriginal boy who was one of the, one of the other classes, he was the um, adopted son of the Presbyterian minister and his wife. We raced home and his white adoptive mother was met us at the door and he said, mum, mum, a boy asked Angelo, why is he so black? Are we black? And his mother said, no, you're not black. You've got lovely olive skin. In one day, I learned a lesson that I've never forgotten. That someone on the basis of the colour of their skin has a right to ask me about mine and to ask me to explain myself. And then a kindly adoptive mother who thinks that being black is something to be ashamed of and tells us we're not black after all. And I think we, we live in that, and that's part of the tyranny of having to translate, mm. the tyranny of translation, which always carries 
its own betrayal, even if it is the betrayal of ourselves, Tila. And, well, in the end, I said, well, New York can have their opinion. Um, Good. And this is either going in or I'm not going down mm. as the author of the opinion. Anyway, we got it there. So if it's out there, if you want to go look at my LinkedIn now, the opinion is up. And I wanted to, um, speaking of school and, and the stories this nation values and tells itself, um, I wanted to dive a little bit deeper into, you know, this concept of what we would call Garyala, mm. truth, um, and this indoctrination of, I think, and, and when we say whiteness, it, whiteness is an idea. It's an idea, yeah. Um, and, you know, our society is clearly built on whiteness. And I wanted to think, though, a little bit earlier in our lives, way before we even went to, you know, university, about how our stories and especially the way in which, you know, we're called upon to translate and write our opinions and they're not taken seriously. Mm. And it reminded me of, I think, back when we were at school, you're trying to express your worldview, but everything that come down to our dreamings or our stories, they're all myths. Mm, myths. It's a myth. It's in somewhere in the dreaming. It's not real. And the other day we had that yarn about, um, you know, white opinions get taken as truth and law. Mm. Our opinions get taken as, what did you say? An attack. An attack. And, and opinion as well. Out of our mouths, the truth just becomes our opinion. I don't think I uttered a single opinion in the King's coronation coverage. I, I spoke about the Crown invading and stealing our land. That's not an opinion. I spoke about my grandfather who believed in this country so much and he passed that belief to me and I still hold to it that we will fight to be the country that we should be and he went to war for us, this country, as a rat of Tobruk to come back to a land where he couldn't go into the pub and have a drink with the men he'd served with. That's not an opinion. We were barred. That was mm. the law. My mother's father, my grandfather, arrested for drinking alcohol and chained to a tree like a dog with no food or water left in the blazing sun. It's not an opinion. It happened and we, we could be arrested for drinking alcohol. These are not opinions. We talked about martial law being mm. declared. Yes. I want to Next that. year, 200 years since the declaration of martial law in Bathurst the first time it had happened in Australia, um, on our people, where our people were placed outside the protection of the law. The war of Bathurst, as it was reported in the newspapers of the day, called an exterminating war that our people emerge out of. Martial law signed and sealed by the Crown. It's not an opinion. It happened, and yet in one newspaper, the words martial law appeared in inverted commas, as if we just made this up. Mm. Tilly, you've read the declaration. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it, I have read it. And the war that was declared on our people was done in the name of the rule of law. Mm. And that weighs heavily on me as a lawyer because when we think about this reckoning, not, you know, not reconciliation concept, I do wonder if this nation is really capable of unpacking these issues. Reconciliation, in my opinion, and I've argued this in, in my essays and in my writing, it's an excuse to bypass our foundational grievances. Um, it's an assumption that this nation is a settled nation mm. and that in the name of reconciliation, we're supposed to reconcile with a nation that hasn't even heard or seen us or resolved the war. Mm. And How when do that was done... you deal with that as someone who is a lawyer and working in the law that has been used against us? Well, it's very frustrating. <laughs> 
I think I actually learned from even a younger age before I was a lawyer. Um, I knew that school, for example, I had to play the game. If I had to write an essay, okay, there was a structure to the essay. Um, if I needed to get a certain mark, okay, there's a formula to get that mark. And so, you know, navigating that space just became this foreign concept that I would learn the tools and I would execute it. And so back to this war on Wiradjuri people, and it was Governor Thomas Brisbane mm. at the time who declared that and, um, you know, he said the natives would be outside the rule of law and to do, take all measures. And I think one of the frustrations I've expressed in this notion of reconciliation as well, it's that we're assumed in, in Australia that this is just a social justice issue. Mm. This is just to, you know, massage out our feelings and make us feel good. And I recall going to school, you know, celebrating reconciliation, having cupcakes, doing the tea, whatever. But it, the aftermath of the Wiradjuri War can't be reconciled through the act of reconciliation. This is as much, I think, in addition to a social justice issue, it's an economic issue, it's a rule of law issue, and the consequence for us living today, it's that the purpose of the war in our country was to provide land grants to colonisers, and that, that's, that's just the truth, um, that effectively locked us out of an economy on our mm. own country. Mm. And I've tried to reconcile this through this notion of reckoning. Mm. Um, and what's the difference? <laughs> what does a reckoning bring that a reconciliation doesn't? Well, I think that you mentioned this the other day on the panel, but you can prove me wrong if I'm wrong, which is it, it comes back to this concept of consent. Mm. Cook did not even follow his own rule of law. Mm. And I think that as a nation, we have to be brave enough, Garyala, speak the truth enough to actually reckon with that fact mm. of the way in which this nation was invaded, mm. to be able to heal through the difficult work. And so reckoning to me... We do have to sit with the discomfort. I, you know, I don't think that we should be made to feel good because actually we're still bearing the wounds. Those old people that sat under those trees back in our country still ache from what happened to them being forced onto missions. And parts of our history are not feel-good moments. They're simply not. Um, Is there anything more... And we're sitting here today and having this conversation. I've written several books. Mm. Teela's going to have a novel out soon that she's written and she's written lots of different things in different articles and um, so many others have written and spoken story and made films. Is there anything more we can say? Well, I think ultimately if you look through the lens of something like the racism we're enduring, um, and while this is just one kind of myopic view of it, there has to be consequences and accountability to this behaviour. Um, even if you take away our personal lives and look at it in another context, which is um, sport, for example, mm. racial slurs and that act is about putting us in our place. Mm. It's about making sure that we're reminded that we're at the bottom of the hierarchy. And that those words, what are said to grown men on football fields, can bring them to their knees. Mm. And where there's no accountability, what happens in Australia, you're, there's either an inquiry mm. of the organisation into itself or take away children. The other issue is where it's adults are involved, they're either promoted or put in halls of fame. Mm. Yeah, as, as we've seen. I just saw this morning on television, here's just a, a little example. There was a, a First Nations reporter on air and was asked to talk about his own experience in the light of what's happened the past couple of weeks with me. 
his own experience of racism within the ABC and outside the ABC. And he did that. And tears started to come to his eyes. And I just thought, when do we stop? Why do we have to always speak? Why do we have to always relive these things? Don't people know by now? I would have, I would have preferred if when he was asked, what, how has this affected you? To have turned instead to the interviewer and said, I'm going to ask you, honestly now, without judgment, just honestly, as human beings, when have you committed racism? When have you fallen silent? When have you laughed at the joke? When have you not corrected someone else? When have you had the racist thought? Be honest now. Stop asking us to relive our pain and own the source of the pain. Mm. I, I really love what Teela did with the idea of reconciliation and reckoning because we can't get to the peace without the truth. We know we can't do that, but truth is a fragile thing. And I've seen all around the world in reporting the wounds of history, how they can be so easily reopened and we can poison ourselves mm. as well with these untold truths or truths that are hijacked for political purposes. Jacques Derrida, the um, French philosopher, had this evocative phrase of those who are born with the bread of apocalypse in their mouths. And I've seen the bread of apocalypse in the mouths of people for whom history is an, is an unending wound with a source of vengeance and resentment that we can never, ever satiate that feeling. Um, and I know the bread of apocalypse. We mm. do know that. But our people, I know, I know, and I know my own tendencies to the vengeance and resentment and the anger. I know when that anger's coming. And all I have to do is think about my old people and I know that they respond with love. They do. They just do over and over. A people who would have every reason not to, but they do. And so I draw on that and I, I love what Teela did around the idea of reckoning and reconciliation. And if, I think reconciliation has become too easy. It's very politicised, becomes a political act or a HR exercise. We'll have a reconciliation action plan. We'll employ people. And these things are all important. And if it helps us to open up the space for a conversation, it's important. But I, I've tried to reimagine the idea of reconciliation and move it from a political to a spiritual notion. Because we are, if nothing else, mm. we are a spiritual people. When I stood at Warringesda on the land that my great-grandmother was born under, the tree that she was born under, I felt not a slither of light between God, me, my people and my country. Not one slither of light. We are spiritual people. I think all of us are called to reconcile ourselves to something higher. Mm. It's not something we can quantify. It's not something we can write down. It's not something that we can fill with quotas. It's not tea and scones. It is a spiritual reconciliation with something bigger than us. I find it in God. I find it in my culture. I find it in my land. You will find it in your way. But it must be something higher than us. It's the reconciliation to something greater mm. than us. And um, when we speak about that concept, you mentioned then over time, you know, compromises when, it, when it's taken too far into the political space. And I wanted to sit with this a little bit because when we do think about this concept of reconciliation, and I mean, you know, I'm I'm clearly a beneficiary of it. Mm. I, you know, I've gone on and got a career um, and degree, so I don't hide away from but those facts. But you work facts, for it too. And I absolutely <laughs> work for it. Um, and in fact, you know, it is the, the door that opened up opportunities that my people didn't have. But that doesn't come, that doesn't take away from their fight. Mm. It was their fight. And it is the fight of our people. Even if you look at, you know, in 1988, 
when the you know Aboriginal people of the Northern Territory held a ceremony, mm. gifted the then Prime Minister Bob Hawke Treaty. the Barunga Statement, 1988, and many people in here might remember his response, which was very moving, it was very emotional, and he promised a treaty. We're still waiting. And in the wake of that, what ended up happening was there was compromises made to roll out reconciliation. Mm. And while I can see the nation change over that time, I've written this, this notion of reckoning as a call to action. Like, I, want, I, I believe we can be better um, as a nation and braver. And even some of the work I remember uh, many years ago being at the UN and meeting old people or even seeing my own kinship fight and struggle for land rights, this nation always responds with, oh, well, it'll take time. It's a complex issue. There's too many of you. You all speak different language. Do you know how long this is going to take? And I've just had enough. Mm. We've had too many excuses in the political space to delay action. And it's obviously brought us to this moment in time. And, and how does that land with you in this year particularly? Well, it lands with me in this year right now, but... It's clear to me that this is... I don't think Australia realises how much we have compromised to get to this point. And the enormous gift we have given the nation to actually have this conversation. Because even, you know, the referendum is being pitched as an act of reconciliation. That's the truth. The Prime Minister himself um, has said it's nothing more, nothing less. Mm. So did you, you, you've written about this, mm. this concept of the package of the compromise, mm. another act of reconciliation, this is nothing more, nothing less. And mm. I think actually we can be better. Mm. Um, but how do we, I guess, start to move through the tension the community is feeling right now. And I think that's very clear and transparent. And amongst our own people too, yeah. the confusion, the mistrust, you don't heal those things with a referendum. Um, you don't heal those things by an act of parliament. We heal those things and we do those things by this, by stories, by sharing space, by where we are and not who we are. There's a photo that I was given by one of my old uncles recently. Went over to have a meeting with these elders eh, in um, Bathurst to commemorate, preparing for this commemoration next year of martial law. He brought it over and he said, I've got a photo of your great-grandfather, my great-grandfather, whose mother, Gurawin, was born into the war of Bathurst, a little girl. And she saw her land being cleared and she gave him the stump of an old ceremonial carved tree. That's my family. The markings on the tree are the generations of our family. And this photo showed my great-grandfather. You know how old people, they, mm. they had their long suit on and their hat and in his hand was a stone axe and he's standing next to our tree. He used to carry that tree with him everywhere and he'd put it down beside him and he'd tell stories. And they called him the storyteller. That's what he was. Because I think we're a story. We're not a law. We're not a constitution. We're not an anthem. We're not a flag. A nation is a story and we're telling this story. And this referendum will form part of this story. To politics, it may be nothing more, nothing less. Mm. To politics, it may be about justiciability. Will it end up in the High Court? Isn't it a story? Isn't that what the Uluru Statement was, a gift mm. to our nation from our people of a new story? And I've been fascinated with the way in which the public debate has, has played out. Many people have probably, you know, heard, you know, 
the, the debate around the amendment, the question whether executives should go in, whether it should not yeah. go in. And I've been so fascinated by the way in which my profession has just really minced and mooted this amendment to no end. And then I sometimes think, does this nation actually stop being so hinged on the English language for once <laughs> and the rule of law and take a step back and each and every one of you now imagine the Uluru Statement and picture the artwork around it <laughs> and not one politician has advocated for a better understanding that each and every one of you got gifted the Jukapa law. You know, I, I, well, on the day that the, the wording of the referendum question was announced, I was back home mm. with mum and dad because I've got to care for my dad a lot now. He, he needs a lot of help. And, uh, and it's a beautiful gift to be able to do that. Um, and this was the day and, and our people who'd fought this battle, you know, mm. the warriors on the stage there and they're crying. And the words of Canberra seemed so distant from where I was with mum and dad. And I, I thought of all the big discussions, all the politics and the law and am I going to vote yes or no and all these people having different arguments. And then I looked at mum and dad. Mm. I just looked at these two people. Who, what they have lived through, what they've seen in their lives, the love and the joy, a Gummeroy woman and a Wiradjuri man and how we were raised. And I looked at them and I thought, I don't care. Put aside all the politics. I just looked at them and I thought, how many times can our country say no to these people? Mm. That's all it comes down to. And speaking of that point now, amazing elders and matriarchs, um, and the fact that, you know, I do want this takeaway that let's just step back and look at the bigger picture. This conversation is not the end point. End point. It's simply the beginning of changing this nation. And we wanted to finish on Yinjamara Wanangala. And we wanted to finish on Yinjamara, which is, I would argue, a legal principle in, mm. in our system um, of governance. And please, Stan, can you share with us... Um, a message of Yinjamara. Teela asked me, you know, we have this phrase, Yinjamara Wenangana, means to live with respect in a world worth living in. Not just respect, but a world worthy of it. She says, is there a poem? And I thought of many different poems. My mum's poems as well. She writes poetry beautifully. And there's a poem that's always spoken to me by Langston Hughes, the African-American poet. And it was called Theme for English B. And he was asked this question. Go home and write a page tonight and let that page come out of you. Then it will be true. It's not easy to know what is true for you or me at 22, my age, but I guess I'm what I feel and see and hear. Harlem, I hear you. Hear you, hear me, we too, you, me. Talk on this page. I hear New York too, me, who? Will I like to eat, sleep, drink and be in love? I like to work, read, learn and understand life. I like a pipe for a Christmas present or records, Bessie, Bob or Bark. I guess being coloured doesn't make me not like the same things other folks like who are other races. So will my page be coloured that I write? Being me, it will not be white, but it will be a part of you. You are white, yet a part of me as I am a part of you. That's American. Sometimes, perhaps, you don't want to be a part of me, nor do I often want to be a part of you. But we are. That's true. Thank you. Well, Yinjimara, everyone, mm, let's you. live in a world worth living in. Mm. Thank you, Stan Grant. Thank you, sister. Thank you to Teela.
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.